Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host for the show. And I'm joined again this week, as always, by my good friend Luke Boggs. How you doing, Luke? I'm doing good, Kyle. It feels like it's been too long, but it always feels that way. Yeah, we're a little slower in the off season as we're kind of figuring out what the next steps are going to be. Um, the exciting news is we have some interesting different stuff coming up in the next few weeks that you're going to hear from us on. Um, so we're not going to give that away yet, but uh, just look for refresh some your feeds coming up. Refresh your yeah, feeds. Always, always refresh the feeds. Um, this week we are going to pick up our legislative off season coverage with a little bit of national politics and a little bit of the Georgia 6th congressional race. And we're going to start with the congressional race and just break down how the first round ended. As you probably know, John Ossoff and Karen Handel advanced to the runoff that will be held on June the 20th. Um, so we're going to talk about where that race is now and what to look for as this race really comes down to just the contest between these two candidates instead of this sort of broad referendum on Trump and Ossoff as the resistance character that was round one. Um, and then on our second topic this week, we are going to give our our Trump 100 days of uh, the presidency update. Uh, he hit his 100 days last Saturday. Um, and so you've probably seen a whole bunch of reflections in the media about what the first 100 days looks like. Um, I'm sure that there are a few of you who thought we might not make it this far, but here we are uh, 100 days in and we'll get to see what the next 100 is going to bring. Uh, but we'll start the show as we always do with some news and notes from the week. So Luke, what did you see in the news this week? Uh, I think the most interesting Georgia news that I saw was uh, there's been some uh, budgeting problems with the insurance commission uh, because our insurance commissioner, uh, Ralph Hudgens, seemed to have run out of money uh, and uh, over budgeted some staff raises and, you know, some other things. And you're saying that they are trying to make all the wages in the department a bit more competitive with the other departments and seemingly they uh overshot their projections a little bit and so now they're having to fire a bunch of people and go on furloughs and so i find this is an interesting story not just because of the huh, huh, republicans can't run the government and wring out money and not being fiscally responsible other things are true and it's kind of funny but what's more interesting to me is just like how much trouble georgia state employees seem to have and actually like getting a good competitive pay and compared to other states there's some studies that uh, put us pretty low on that, especially with uh, our law enforcement and uh, other, you know, teachers just around, you know, all across the board. Our state employees seem to not get um, paid at the level of other states. And so I just find it interesting how, you know, they're having this much trouble balancing their books while also keeping their, uh, you know, their wages competitive. And this is even after, um, uh, after the financial crash, the number of employees of the insurance you know, department has gone down quite significantly. So it's not like they uh, went on a hiring craze either. Uh, what about yeah, you? Think, what are your thoughts on well, this? A, a couple of things on that. The other interesting thing to note is, is this does just sound like a pretty simple budgeting mistake. It may not even reflect really how... Hudgens runs the department. Uh, it just it does sound like somebody screwed up, but if you've been paying attention to the healthcare debate that has reignited, really 
if a policy is changed, the outcome is going to be that the state is going to take a greater role in regulating health insurance. Um, and so there's going to be a whole bunch more responsibility that comes down on Hudgens and his department and then whoever the next insurance commissioner is going to be if the Republicans succeed in some sort of health reform legislation. And this is just not a good look for them. Um, and then on the salary note, uh, the other I guess we'll do we'll do a bunch of news this week. The other news item that I wanted to bring up quickly was the uh, there was a report today. I think it was from Greg Bluestein that said that the teacher pay raises that the state had passed in this last legislative session, that some of those raises may not actually get to teachers, which was also an issue with the last couple of times that the state has tried to raise teacher pay. Um, It's something that we should dig into in in a real topic sometime, but the short version of it is just the state apparently just can't mandate that um, whatever money is given that is meant for raises that actually just results in teachers getting paid more. Um, it's something complicated with the way the salary schedules work and and things in different parts of the state. But it is interesting to me. I thought this was a weird story today that um, the state just can't say we're going to pay our teachers 1%, 2% more every year. It is apparently more complicated than that. Um, the other story that I saw earlier this week um, is the story saying that Deal is he's on the verge of signing the campus carry bill. All indications right now seem like he's going to do that. He's been relatively positive about uh, where the bill is now um, after this legislative session versus where it was when he vetoed it last year. Well, I mean, um, you know, at least at least the legislature actually addressed his concerns this time. Last time they just basically blatantly didn't. So I'm not surprised that he's more toward towards uh, signing this bill, even though I'm not exactly happy with it. Um, it just... but the, the one piece of, I think, maybe hesitation out of him or maybe just wanting to clarify this issue is he did urge campus police and the uh, police departments that are in college towns across the state to, to step up their efforts to increase patrols on things like parking lots and other areas where students might be vulnerable. Um, he just said earlier this week he wasn't calling out anybody specifically but he just really wasn't satisfied with where the departments have been in terms of keeping students safe on campus um i don't know if this is also sort of pointing to maybe the potential downside of this bill where you're going to need more police in the area because there's potentially going to be more risk of a shooting happening um I don't. That would be the more well, ominous reading I, I mean, into what the, Deal said. The thing that I'm confused about when it comes to this legislation in the first place is that, like, the only logical reason you would want to be able to carry a gun on campus is if you are afraid that you might need a gun on campus. And so, I just don't see why everyone, uh, you know, on the Republican side is like, "Yeah, let's turn our campuses into the Wild West," rather than. Maybe we should pay more for security so that our kids can go to campuses without being so afraid legitimately that they think they need a gun. Like, that is my big just confusion, like, why that is not the discussion that's being had, and that instead we're only having the discussion that gun, giving, letting anyone carry a gun on campus is the only solution to this problem that otherwise, you know, has more than one solution. Yeah, he raised these concerns, and I think this is one that we are – I don't think this is a bill that's going to pass that we're just not going to hear about it ever again. I think this is a a pretty significant policy change if he does decide to sign it 
that we're going to be talking about more in the future. And unfortunately, um, there'll probably be some negative consequences. Yeah, yeah, I think so, which is sad to say. But laws are changeable, and uh, I'm sure this debate will continue um, on into election season. And speaking of election season, we're going to go ahead and kick it off with the race between now John Ossoff and Karen Handel. So, um, Luke, why don't you get us started on what do you think on the Georgia six race? Yeah, well, uh, let's start with a quick recap for those that did not follow it uh, hour by hour. Um, at the beginning of the night, John Ossoff looked pretty, pretty strong and had a pretty commanding league. That's not abnormal in Georgia and really around the country because Democrats tend to do a little bit better with early voting. Um, but with the day of voting, the Republicans caught up. Uh, the final result was that John Ossoff got 48.1% of the vote with a total of 9,000, sorry, 92,673 votes. Karen Handel, who got in second place, got to 19.8% with three, uh, 38,071 votes. Um, the first, the first thing I would say, and Kyle can back me up here, is we we just got we have a Slack chat, um, like many great uh, news organizations these days do, um, and we were discussing who we thought would actually make it into the runoff and whether Ossoff would be able to pull this thing out um, on his own in one fell swoop. Um, and while we did think it was in the realm of possibility, we didn't think it was possible. And we were all pretty much in unanimity that we thought Karen Handel was the person that was going to make it into the runoff with Ossoff. So really, on first glance, it's sort of like there's no story here. This is exactly what we all expected. But if you look at it a little bit closer, there are some interesting nuances. The first thing I would say is that John Ossoff actually... I mean, pretty significantly outperformed all of his, you know, his polls. I mean, it was just kind of on the edges of the margin of error because the last couple polls that I saw had him hovering around like 44, 46%, um, and he ended up getting 48. So, I mean, that's not insignificant. Um, it's not a win, uh, but it was not a loss, and it was, again, better than what polls projected. And I think the most annoying narrative out of this um was and not not too many organizations were guilty of this but there was a lot of talk that like oh john ossoff didn't win this thing outright that means the democrats are losers and john ossoff is a loser and it's just like there were 18 people in this race if he had pulled this thing off with 50 percent plus one in the first go round, like that would have been an act of god <laughs> like this is a pretty impressive result for a 30 year old first-time candidate in a Republican district that usually elected, you know, Tom Price with, like, 20% of the vote over his opponents. So, I mean, all in all, this is a fascinating race. Uh, we're very happy to have it in our home state of Georgia. I mean, I've been really kind of confused, honestly, listening to a bunch of different podcasts and like, man, they're talking about Georgia so much. It seems like all of all of the podcasts that I listen to slowly became Georgia podcasts and really got obsessed with the uh, sixth district. So all in all, it's a very exciting race. I know uh, a lot of my fellow young Democrats are very excited about it. Um, I'm going to be out in the district knocking some doors pretty soon, and I'm looking forward to that. So Kyle, what are your thoughts on this race? What have you seen? What's interesting? interesting to you 
Yeah, I'm not particularly surprised at the result. I do think that Karen Handel had a lot of built-in name ID advantage. And then when you look at that district, it was a district that overwhelmingly reelected Tom Price and then also almost turned on Donald Trump in the presidential election. Um, So that sort of brand of Republican that I think would do better in that district is a lot closer to Karen Handel and the record that she's had versus some of the other Republicans in that race who were clearly trying to be like the primary defenders of Donald Trump, people like Bob Gray, um, who praised Trump on multiple occasions. He ended up finishing, I think, third or fourth. Uh, Bob Gray Um, was third. Third, and, third and Dan, Dan Moogie, who was the other Trumpite, I would say. I mean, again, there was a couple people trying to r- run to do that, but Dan Moogie and Bob Gray were the two main ones, and they got, a, you know, they got about what Karen Handel got. Karen Handel got a little bit more than they did, but had that vote consolidated a little bit more, um, Karen Handel might have been facing a tougher challenger. For that number yeah, but spot. I do think that that is that is telling that the, I mean, this was a president who was just elected to the elation of a lot of Republicans who didn't think he could do it. I mean, they weren't exactly your traditional Republicans, and they aren't really your Georgia Six Republicans. But um, he did surprise a lot of people. But that brand, I don't think, is um, you know is yeah. very well. I mean, just to, to steal district. a line that my friend Greg Turrell used. I mean, these are like Mitt Romney Republicans. These are people that like very happily and enthusiastically voted for Mitt Romney and thought that he was someone that every candidate should aspire to be. And that's definitely not what Donald Trump is. Um, and so it's not surprising to me that someone with strong Trump backing or someone that seeked the mantle of having strong Trump backing uh, did not succeed in this district because it's just not a district made for them. So I do think now, though, that this race almost starts to feel just like a more normal race. I mean, the whole 18 candidate thing and the fact that Ossoff was the beneficiary of both the resistance against Trump movement and the terrible decision that uh, Republican campaign folks made in the beginning to basically prop him up by trying to tear him down for being a Star Wars fan. Um, that all was just, I don't know, It's a it was sort of a weird political environment. Now you have a Republican who might be slightly favored, who um, now is embracing the sitting Republican president, although it also turns out sort of similar to what we remember about the end of Obama's campaign days, particularly in those 2014 midterms, that she is now tied to a relatively unpopular Republican president. And John Ossoff now represents the opposition to the Trump handle agenda. And so I imagine that you will see those two names paired um, in a lot of campaign advertisements going forward. Um, Karen Handel, you know, she was not talking about Trump during the first round of this thing. And now I think she's made the decision at least because he had a fundraiser for her. Um, and he talked about her both at the NRA convention and in the press when he was in Atlanta last week, um, that she is now the, you know, sort of establishment slash Trump Republican candidate, and then you have the Democrat playing the role that Republicans played during um, Obama midterm elections back in 2014 and then in some of the specials that went on with all that. Well, one thing I want to mention, because it's sort of the, the flip side of what you're talking about, which is 
Uh, once they realized that Star Wars was super popular, maybe <laughs> attacking someone for liking Star Wars was a really bad idea, and it actually fired up a lot of uh, people I know, um, they went back to the traditional well of Republican attack ads, which is John Ossoff is literally Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi has been wearing a wig all these years and is actually John Ossoff. Basically saying that John Ossoff will vote as Nancy Pelosi tells him to. The usual attack of all Republicans since she came on the scene and was House Speaker for, you know, four years. It's just, it's such a tired ag. My my one wonder is if it actually works. If there's anybody who's like, that John Ossoff fella seems fine, but I really hate Nancy Pelosi, so I'm not going to vote for, vote for him. Because, I mean... You know, there's definitely been anecdotes that I've heard from people in John Barrow's district that a lot of people like, you know, really like John Barrow, but were unwilling to vote for him because they did not want to help Nancy Pelosi or Obama. But it's just like, after all this time, is it still a narrative that actually works? Is it an ad strategy that actually works? You know, maybe in this district it does, but it'll be interesting to see if he overcomes that or not. Um, I don't, real quick on that, two points I would say. One, it's now been a really long time since Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House. And this district, part of the one of the reasons that it is potentially shifting um, to either a purple or a blue district is that there are a lot of younger people that are coming into the district. There's a lot of people over the last 10 years who have moved into Atlanta. And there's a big push among employers to get millennials and young people into the region um, to kind of put Atlanta back on the growth path that it was in the 90s. Um, So for those younger voters, I don't know that they have like burned into their brain how terrible Nancy Pelosi allegedly is. I mean, she was speaker for a little while. She is very much tied to the fight over Obamacare. And you can bring up that quote that she had about passing the bill so you can know what was in it. But I don't know that that message resonates. And I don't know that as be particularly because, you know, the big liberal accomplishment of Nancy Pelosi's was the Affordable Care Act, and now that is also something that is getting more popular. I think that that mix of her not being in the spotlight and her accomplishments not being as polarizing as they once were, I don't know that that really is the smart strategy that it used to be. Yeah, and also it's just like, if it was such a smart strategy, I don't see like why they need to spend money on ads to point it out. It's like, yes, he is a Democrat. He would probably vote for Nancy Pelosi to be Speaker since she is the minority leader of the House. And so it's just odd. It's just very odd to me, and I don't don't understand it um, at all. Um, the, The only other thing I would say is I kind of I go back to your earlier point. I kind of agree with you that this race has been a little weird. Um, but I also think it still is weird in the sense that Democrats are like really fired up about John Ossoff. And I just have not seen or heard the same energy on the uh, Republican side for Karen Handel. Um, so I think, I think it would be helpful for some of our listeners if we kind of go through the the political history of Karen Handel because a lot of people might not remember it because you know people have short memories and also uh you know folks like me 
uh, have only been really paying attention for a couple years, and so might, they might not know that Karen Handel was once Secretary of State, and that she was nearly governor of the state of Georgia, you know, nearly the first Republican female candidate, or any female candidate, as far as I'm aware, for a major party in the state of Georgia. Um, you know, that's that's not insignificant that she barely lost the race to become governor, and then... Um, ran for Senate last cycle and didn't really make a good showing at all. And so this is kind of her third, you know, time up to bat for a political office since she left the Secretary of State position. So do you have any thoughts on how that might affect this race and how it affects voters' perception on her in this district? I do think that to some extent she almost suffers from, I mean, I don't think to the same degree, but I think she could suffer a little bit from sort of the same Hillary Clinton fatigue. I mean, her name has been around in state politics a lot. Um, and it is not a name that is going to get, for instance, Bob Gray's folks really excited. Bob Gray um, showed up and endorsed Karen Handel shortly after the runoff and said that the number one goal for Bob Gray was to get a Republican elected to that seat and make sure that it stays in Republican hands. But some of the quotes um, that ran in a news article that we'll share from this appearance that Bob Gray made, his supporters were not on board in the same way that Bob Gray was. Um, And that this is sort of the trouble for people who are Trump Republicans is that Trump really did make his way by critiquing the existing Republican Party establishment. And so to try to bring some of those same people who were sort of the enthusiasm drivers of the Republicans in the 2016 election, to try to bring them on in these specials, which are also not, um, you know, very high profile or very, um, you know, like exciting races to participate in. Um, I think that is going to be the challenge. The The other issue, I think, too, is that... Um, Karen Handel just does sort of fall into some of the same, you know, same old Republican positions, the including her work when she was at the Susan Komen Foundation to limit that organization's funding that supported Planned Parenthood. Um, this is an issue, and we'll link to the full description of what of what happened with that um, instance. This is a while back, but that basically just polarizes the parties into where they usually are. Um, And so John Ossoff can present himself of a defender of a woman's right to choose and having access to full slate of reproductive health services and say, you know, when Karen Handel was uh, with the Susan Komen Foundation, she worked to eliminate all that funding for Planned Parenthood that the foundation was, um, was giving them. So she also just sort of falls into some of the same old battles that, that we've had, Um, and I don't know that those old battles are the things that are really firing up the Republicans that need to show up to keep that seat in Republican hands. Yeah, because at the end of the day, um, you know, Karen Handel has to win a lot of people that didn't vote for her. She has to win the votes of a lot of people that, when they had the choice to vote for her, picked someone else to actually beat Ossoff. Because really, Ossoff has to just turn out everybody that voted for him, pick up some of the Democratic votes, and maybe boost turnout a little bit, and that's how he wins. While it's Karen Handel to win, has to get every single vote of every Republican that didn't vote for her. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's going to be a tall task. I, th- I think the thing that we're not sure of is what does the role of money actually play in this race? I, you're already seeing advertising budgets for both of these campaigns that are well beyond any house race, I think, <laughs> Any ever. gubernatorial, senatorial <laughs> race. The bo- the, you know, John Ossoff, before the uh, primary, you know, the, the first round of voting, I guess, since it's not really a primary, um, he had raised more money than Michelle Nung and Jason Carter. I mean, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, so I, I do think that there's a chance that probably by June the 20th, I bet voters in the 6th District are going to be tired of seeing both of their faces in all these ads and, and hearing from them. I'm sure that they're going to get deluged by ads in a way that that district never is. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a really interesting thing to see because they just really aren't ever really inundated with ads like this. So I'll be... The other... No, go ahead. The the other byproduct of that, and I, I just thought this thing was pretty funny. Did you see the uh, the little screw up the uh, handle cam- campaign had over the B-roll footage that she shot? I did not see this. What, what, what's the story of this? This is just a weird thing that happens in politics, and it's a byproduct of the fact that campaigns cannot coordinate with their political political action committees. And so to allow political action committees to use footage of the candidate in their ads, campaigns shoot a bunch of footage of the candidate just sort of walking around, looking like they're doing important things like signing documents or talking to a constituent or just sort of being active. And then they put these videos without sound out on YouTube. And then they're basically free for anyone to use, but the idea is that the PACs will use them just to have as B-roll footage in their ads for the candidate that they support. Um, So Karen Handel filmed this B-roll footage. And I guess what happens is the director of the footage just sort of tells you to say random things or you you don't have to make sense in these things that you're saying because the whole point is it's video without audio. But they posted the B-roll footage of Karen Handel with the audio on YouTube, and it went around. It was in AJC. Rachel Maddow actually picked it up and did it on her show. Um, and so it's Karen Handel talking to a constituent about how to like get n- clean your nose hair out of your nose. And then there was a point where she's sitting there at a desk and she's presumably talking to somebody on the other side of the desk. And she says, well, I wanted to bark at you the way that people bark at me. And I think, I guess she just said something completely random in the moment. Um, and so this was just kind of funny. I don't know. It, it kind of got laughed at by Rachel Maddow. It was more derisive on her show than I think it was worth. Um, but this is just a weird thing that yeah, campaigns it's pre- do. It's pretty weird. I mean... But it was pretty funny to see it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, we all should at least remember uh, the hashtag McConnelling that uh, Jon Stewart did near his, the end of his run at The Daily Show, which was they took some of this B-roll footage and put music over it, and it was really, really funny um, and just insane things. Uh, as he pointed out, and this probably would work for um, the Karen Handel footage as well, if you put music over it, find a song that mentions eyes, and for some reason it works really well. Um, the, the other thing is too, that I think it just, 
points out how ridiculous this race is gonna get like that that just seems to be the standard now that like strange things are going to happen and they always have but it's just it just feels like now that trump's won and we're in this environment like everything feels just one degree off like the color's a little wrong or it's a little blurry because all of the norms have just kind of been thrown out the window. So we're in an environment where John Ossoff might win. A 30-year-old in Tom Price's district might win. And had, you know, before the uh, first round of voting, had raised significantly more money from uh, all the other candidates and, you know, still had a pretty low average donation. So, I mean, in that environment, it's really just hard to predict and hard to know... Um, you know, what to even feel. Um, the only other thing I really want to point out before we move on to the 100 days is that this is actually not the only race going on in Georgia. There's another race going on uh, in Senate District 32 uh, that is um, it's happening because Judson Hill, who is a state senator, decided to run for this seat. And so that uh, brought, you know, brought another special election. Uh, strangely, it's not happening on the same day as the, um, the District 6 race. I'm not sure why they're not doing that. I'm gonna slaughter the name. So the Democrat candidate is, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this right, Christine Trebush, and the Republican candidate is Kay Kilpatrick. Uh, interesting thing here is that the Democrat, uh, candidate also got more votes than the Republican candidate. You can't read as much into it as you can into the District 6 race because it's much closer uh, with the Democrat getting 24% of the vote and the, the top Republican candidate getting uh, 21. Uh, but it's going to be an interesting race. Um, like I said, strangely, it is a month before um, the election in the 6th district. So the election day is actually uh, Tuesday, uh, May 16th. So if you are in the 32nd second district uh definitely pay attention to that race and uh you know make sure you go out and vote i'm pretty sure early voting starts uh may 6th so uh, definitely look into that race too it'll be interesting to see because i imagine there might be a little bit that we can read into with how that race goes uh with uh john ossoff but at the end of the day it's just you know it's one data point it's not gonna flip anything assuredly so uh keep that on your radar and with that, I think we'll move to our second topic of the week. So we are now 100 days into the Trump administration, and we are all still here. Um, it has been an interesting 100 days, to say the least. Um, I was struck by, actually, just to kick this off, I saw video of Barack Obama at last year's White House Correspondents' Dinner, his last speech at that event, and that felt like so long ago. And just the fact that he gave a pretty standard final speech in that moment, it, re it really wasn't all that memorable. Um, and just to have sort of like low drama, low profile <clears throat> presidential events is just something that seems like so long ago now. Even, even the Bush administration was the same way. I mean, he had his critics, but people generally agreed that he was the president and mostly acting at least in his own best interest most of the time. This 100 Days of Trump has really just been a wild ride, but it it makes everything else feel like it was so 
far away. Well, um, I want I want to throw some contrast into what you're saying because I've heard other people say that too. And in a lot of ways, and this is going to sound like a joke at first, but I promise you it's not. In a lot of ways, the Trump administration operates in your mind like a horror movie in that a lot of things happen a bad horror movie not a good one a lot of things happen things jump out at you but you don't actually really remember any of the content of the movie like you don't you weren't actually genuinely afraid of anything it's just like you get like little like hits of outrage and hits of being afraid of something because day to day there's no coherence to anything that's happening and so it's just like you're being dragged along emotionally by a bad horror movie that has the monster jump out at you every couple minutes and that's that's how i felt about this administration and yes it does make everything else feel really far away and we're operating on a completely different plane now but at the same time it's just like it's ultimately anticlimactic in some ways because our deepest fears of what could happen really have not been realized yet and i think not insignificantly that's that's because nothing truly bad has happened externally now the trump administration has tried to do things that you and i and i'm sure many others but you know think would be bad they've tried to repeal obamacare they're still trying to do that you know the immigration order was definitely something i think is bad a lot of the environmental regulations has been really bad but like as a force trying to exert its will on the american people they've not really done a great job um and that's mostly i think due to incompetence and being surrounded by a team that really does not fundamentally agree on anything What's scary to me, and it'll be the last thing I say because I can see you want to talk, Kyle, is that uh, when something bad happens externally, that type of like management and structure is not going to cope well with it. When we have, you know, because a crisis always happens. When we have that crisis, their reaction to it is going to be when I'm genuinely afraid for the first time. Uh, since Trump got elected and since I saw the first couple weeks. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that we have been in a period where it has been um, a lot of noise and, and not a lot of actual substance to it. The The immigration bans the, that were blocked by the court on two separate occasions, the failure to repeal Obamacare, um, there was even things around we you might see after we've recorded this an executive corner uh, an executive order come out on um, some religious liberty provisions but even that was one that I learned today um, was is a watered down version potentially of something that they proposed internally in February that was a very sweeping, uh, executive order that would have basically allowed anyone to discriminate against LGBT people based on religious conscience, whether it was in your religious organization, as an employer, um, as an establishment that offers services. Even that was another one that was written internally, got leaked, and then ultimately may end up getting watered down by the time that it gets released this week. Um, so yeah, I do agree that there really hasn't been a ton of substance outside of uh, the ramped up activity in immigration uh, from the from ICE. 
Um, which that that stuff is terrible. That we the first dreamer was deported recently, um, which is just a terrible implementation of a terrible immigration policy. Um, I do worry about crisis too. I partially worry about it because there are still a whole bunch of departments and uh, department positions in various agencies that are not filled. He's really just kind of getting into the end of the cabinet nominations. Uh, Sonny Perdue, who became agriculture secretary, former governor of Georgia, he was just put in a couple of weeks ago. And and then then almost immediately. (laughs) Yeah, he saved NAFTA by uh, going up to Trump in his lead up to his 100th day where he had began the week saying that he was going to be aggressive in getting the U S out of the NAFTA uh, trade agreement. And then heard from Justin Trudeau who asked him to renegotiate it. And then heard from Sonny Perdue and Wilbur Ross who showed them that if you just backed out of NAFTA and lost some of the benefits of that trade deal, that a lot of the people that would get hurt are people who were Trump voters. And they literally just like showed him a map of where Trump voters were and where the adverse effects of getting out of NAFTA would be. Um, I don't, I just like, I'm so at a loss for words about where this is going. It's they've just been spinning their wheels on so many things for the first 100 days that it is. I think it was a really difficult thing to evaluate. And I don't know. I saw somewhere that his tweets are getting less engagement Um, And I do feel like they are reported on a little bit less than they were during the campaign. I sort of wonder if we're just going to get tired of him really quickly in a way that if you're not outraged about him or excited about him one way or the other, I think that polarizing nature is sort of the fuel that he kind of lives on. Um, If he just sort of recedes into the background as a kind of ineffective, bumbling president, it's definitely not good for his agenda. Um, well, you know, I, th- I think I think it's not irrelevant to remember the larger historical, you know, situation here. We've only had forty five presidents. I do not remember the names of all of them at all times, and there's definitely been like long sections of the history of the United States where presidents were insanely weak. And basically didn't really do anything. And that Congress did everything. And what's really, I think, hard for us to deal with in this situation is that from FDR, basically to Trump, every single president had an agenda and pushed it and was decently successful in like crafting policy and doing things and actually like being the voice of the nation for a little bit. And Trump really just does not seem interested in doing any of that. And he's not really interested in pushing an agenda consistently because every single issue that he pushes is a negotiation with himself. Because like NAFTA, NAFTA during the campaign seems like a huge thing. There was no question NAFTA's out. He's in, he's in office, and now NAFTA, I don't know, maybe NAFTA's in, maybe NAFTA's out, maybe we're going to renegotiate it, like, all this stuff. Like, the only consistency has been on immigration. That's the only thing that he's not wavered. That's the only thing that he's pushed as hard as he possibly could. Every other issue has just, like, basically been on the back burner 
we'll do it when we need to do it. Like, you know, I, I haven't watched nearly as much TV as uh, our president does, but like, you know, when I see Trump and people ask him questions, it's like, oh, there's no rush. We'll do it when we do it. Like, and it's just very odd because I think we just forget that like the presidency is really hard as Trump has found out and he thought this was going to be easy. And so he's surrounding himself with not the A team, not even the B team, not even the C team. He's with the D team and all the A through C people. And in a lot of ways, he doesn't have to work a team. for him. In a lot of areas, he doesn't have a team right. either. And that's not the other irrelevant. And so, I mean, really what I think is going to happen is that we're going to spin our wheels for two years and then the American people will be fed up with it and they'll vote out the, uh, you know, Republicans out of Congress and we'll take back the House and maybe we take back the Senate. That's a lot harder just because of the map, but we probably won't lose too many people. And I think that's just because, and, and you know, maybe that'll change. Maybe they'll figure out how to do it. Because, I mean, the other thing is, and this is very important, and so I don't want to not play devil's advocate at least a little bit there's been other administrations that ended up being very successful that had like a horrible first year like bill clinton's first year was not great it was pretty bad um and then he ended up being a pretty decent president by most measures uh you know uh, i'm trying to think i think reagan also had a pretty rough first year so it's not completely inconceivable that like maybe they like turn the ship around, Trump fires a bunch of people and puts in, you know, brings in the right people. Like maybe that happens. But um, at the end of the day, it just seems like if this current team stays in place and nothing insane happens, no major crisis happens, I don't see how they break out of this funk. Because what it seems their problem is, is that Trump has no solid agenda. Trump has nothing that he actually wants to do. He has nothing that he cares about. And because of that, he throws everything to Congress to figure out, and then Congress doesn't agree on anything. They don't agree on anything at all. Because even the revamped healthcare bill still has over 20 Republicans going against it. And so it's just like on any issue, I don't see how they're going to get enough votes to make it happen unless there's union, you know, union, everyone agrees. Everyone has to agree on something or it doesn't happen. And they have to agree on almost every single detail. I mean, that's why Neil Gorsuch was able to get confirmed super easily because literally every single Republican was like, yeah, that seems like a good idea. Um, yeah, the one thing I would add on the legislative stuff is that, and I think I've said this before, but the the other key piece of this is that we sort of knew going into particularly the healthcare fight, and I think we know this going into the fight over tax reform, which is the next thing that's coming up, although it is somewhat contingent on what happens with healthcare just because of the, the strategy that congressional leadership wants to use to pursue both of those policies. Um, what happened with the Affordable Care Act and the Obama administration, what happened um, with No Child Left Behind from the Bush administration... Um, and even really what happened with some of the, the high-profile negotiations between Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich during the 90s was that the president was a driving force for his party. He was the driving and, force. Yeah. I mean, there were Democrats that wanted to get out of health care reform. There, Rahm Emanuel wanted Barack Obama to get out of health care reform almost in everyone, 2010. Like almost all the staffers went out of Obamacare and out of the health care fight, and they thought they should focus on the economy, and Obama said no. Because here's the thing. And so, in, well, just to, ra the, the ra to wrap that up, though, Trump doesn't care about these things, and he doesn't understand 
the different uh, points of friction within the Republican caucus. Even today on his, on the latest incarnation of the healthcare proposal, there's this big fight over whether or not the bill is ultimately going to provide protections for people with pre-existing conditions. And on Sunday, Trump was like, yes, it does. But part of the reason that the bill has moved to the right is because you needed to get Freedom Caucus Republicans. And so Trump is not managing the flow between policy options that is ultimately going to be able to get this thing across the finish line. And if he doesn't care, he's not going to be able to do it on tax reform. He's not going to be able to do it on this. Um, I just, he's not going to be able to do it on some of his more controversial budget items like the wall. Um, And then today he said that in September, he would like to see a government shutdown because the concessions that he had to make on the budget deal that they reached this week, which kept the government from shutting down basically on a short-term period until September, um, that those were the fault of Democrats and he needed more Republicans to get the job done. He just, there is no strategy for accomplishing the things that he needs Congress to help him accomplish. Yeah, and the thing I was going to say is just like, I cannot tell you what Trump's like top three things that he wants to do right now are. Because every time I think I know, he changes his position on them. So, you know, for Obama, like, it was easy to know. It was super easy to know. He wanted to stop the collapse of the economy that he inherited from Bush. He wanted to get us out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And he wanted to get health care passed. I knew that every single day of the Obama presidency. I, you know, I pretty much knew what Bush's you know, when I came to age during the Bush administration, during the latter half of it, like, I pretty much knew what, like, he, his main priorities were. Um, saying, you know, I don't know that for Trump, and I think that's his biggest problem. I think ultimately... The other issue with Trump... Oh, I was going to say, the other issue with Trump is that it is shocking to me how much the words of the president no longer matter. Um, on Face the Nation, Nikki Haley said that the president's tweets about international affairs are just chatter that she's not paying attention to. Uh, very early on in the healthcare process, Republican aides on the Hill were just rejecting the idea that Trump had a healthcare proposal, that um, they knew he was lying about it, even when he said he did on TV. Um, it just, when you hear about you know what the president is saying, it just doesn't have a lot of impact on our allies around the world on congressional leadership. And then most, most notable, the most notable things that he is saying turn out to be this latest thing that he, I don't even know what he was trying to say about Andrew Jackson, but he got on some sort of rant about Andrew Jackson and how, if he had been alive closer to the start of the civil war, he would have negotiated some kind of a deal to avert the civil war ever happening. Which is a troublesome um, statement since Andrew Jackson was like a very, very proud slave owner. So I'm not sure yeah. what, you know, what he thinks the deal would have been. But regardless of that, I think fundamentally that's a positive thing uh, for this moment. Because if you're going to have Trump be president, which unfortunately that's the decision we have made as a country then it's probably for the best that literally no one takes anything he says seriously because if you do, you're an idiot because he's going to change his position on almost anything 
if anyone walks in the room and says, hey, you know those guys, they just said that black is a cool color, actually red's a cool color. And Trump will go out there and be like, I know I've said that black's a cool color, but actually red's a cool color. Like, you know, he does he just doesn't care. He doesn't care. He wants he wants to turn on TV, see people say nice things about him, and then he will keep doing things if you know, people say nice things, and if they say mean things, then he'll stop doing that thing. Like, that's pretty much what his presidency is going to be, and that's going to be his reaction to every problem that he has, is be like, what gets good feedback, what gets negative feedback. Um, and that's... Now, I do think that he... Now, I do think that he deserves credit for Neil Gorsuch. Um, it didn't exactly require a lot of work on his part, but he did have the recognition politically that uh, supporting the Supreme Court nominee that was attractive to conservatives and helped him really solidify his support among evangelicals during the election. Um, he did that with basically without screwing it up. Um, and the fact that he even had the opportunity to do that is really, uh, I mean, I give him no credit for that. So I'm going to strongly go against you. He literally had to point a finger at a name and say, Hey, this guy. And then Neil Gorsuch did his job and Mitch McConnell broke the rules of the Senate and did his job. And Trump didn't do anything for Neil Gorsuch. Like literally, well, but the, literally, think, a bale of hay did as much as Donald Trump would have done for Neil Gorsuch. A you know, he just picked a name off a list, and everything else was out of his hands. I think honestly, if Trump got more into it, it would have made things worse. Well, that's the idea. He didn't screw it up. I mean, yeah, that's but the it's bar. just like you don't get a participation trophy. The well, but I think in. I think we should wrap this with what we think the next hundred days looks like. I, and and beyond that, I think that if you're trying to learn from this first hundred days, um, is that if you want to help Trump enact his agenda, you have to take decisions off of his plate. And so Congress really has to be the leader on any kind of health or tax proposals uh, for whatever immigration and criminal justice changes that the Trump administration wants to make. I mean, Sessions, uh, the attorney general, has in his mind what he wants to do. He has an agenda, and so he has to be assertive on that. Um, I certainly hope he's not, because if there was a a list of policies that I disagreed with more that this administration is going to pursue, they're all going to come out of Sessions' office. But I think the strategy moving forward is you just have to take things out of his hand, send him to the golf course, and then bring him back for photo ops and bill signings. I mean, it's um, like he said. And he, he wanted to have a vice president that ran both domestic and foreign affairs, and he wanted to make America great again. And he's going to keep trying to do and, that for another uh, 1,358 days. So, hey, look on the bright side. If you're listening to this, it's probably less than that. That's true. It's going to take me a little while to edit this episode. Um, oh man, it's just—I don't—it's just an interesting time, though. What a time to be alive! Uh, but with that, I, th- I think we'll wrap our discussion of Trump's first 100 days, um, and we'll move on to our end notes this week. Um, so, Luke, what is your end note for this week? Uh, I think my end note is that. Um, I've been looking for a cheerier version of Washington and I'm you know glad about to have it uh, because House of Cards is about to come back. So I'm very excited for that. Now, I haven't heard much about this season. I haven't seen the trailer yet. Oh, no, um, we should pause it. 
We should. Okay. All right. So what we're going to do is I'm going to watch the trailer now and we are going to see what's coming in House of Cards. Okay. All right. So I just watched the trailer and all right. I'm looking forward to so, it. So Yeah. What's your reaction though? This, it almost looked like they're trying to set it up to be what the worst version of Trump could have been. There was a lot of only I can do this. Mm-hmm. Luckily, the American people have me, One Nation Underwood. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what's really interesting? Because this has been one of my favorite things about House of Cards. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that they wrote this season significantly before Trump actually won. And and this is what has happened every season, is that they come up with storylines and then they end up being in the news. Because, for example, in like season two, they wrote the whole plot about sexual assault in the military, and then that was the huge thing in the news when that came out, but it was not in the news when they wrote it. And so this has happened like more and more. You know, again, their plot, they had a big plot about Russia being, you know, kind of on the rise and having, you know, a bigger role in American politics, and then again, <laughs> then it happened for real. So I agree with you. It definitely seems like that's the direction they're going. It's sort of what an actual autocratic presidency would look like um, from the United States. And so it'll be uh, definitely interesting to see um, what they do this season. And I'm a huge fan of this show, um, so I'll probably have to rant and talk about it a little bit when the new season comes out. Um, so you you will all have to suffer uh, with Kyle and in, in, in me doing that. Um, I think the, the, the best thing about it is the fact that it has always been a show that kind of winks at you and so it's gonna be a little bit more real now seeing the president and frank actually exercising a lot more power and starting to maybe become a dictator but i think sort of to the contrast of how scary that might be uh seeing the trump team not manage it will be a little bit reassuring so I think that is something I'm looking forward to in this season. Um, and it seems like there's going to be some pretty interesting set pieces because uh, from from watching that trailer and paying attention to some of the locations, it, look like, it looks like Frank's going to get impeached and have to actually like come before the Senate and argue his case. So that will be a pretty fun episode if I'm right about that. <laughs> well, yeah, looking forward to it. We will put the link to that trailer in the show notes for this week and when does that start again it starts at the end of may right they should pay us to talk about this man um (laughs) yes this was not sponsored not sponsored by netflix but netflix if you're out there sponsor us really please i I bet almost all of our listeners watch netflix probably true i am almost certain of that um, um and, sp- and speaking of shows though one of the things we uh are planning on doing pretty soon is actually having a debate on the great political shows of our era and sort of comparing them and contrasting them with you know what value they bring to understanding the process and which one's the most accurate and all that kind of stuff so if you have any thoughts about that you know tweet at us get us on facebook let us know what you think because that should be a pretty fun show and we'd like as much, uh, you know, input on it as possible before we get into that topic. And with that, I think we're going to wrap it for the week. Um, so you will hear from us about political TV. You're going to hear some policy deep dives, um, and some other stuff as we get there. Um, we are, we're looking forward to the legislative off season because we get to do some new stuff. Um, so stay tuned and we will talk to y'all again soon. Bye guys. Bye.
that's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, you can share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find our show. Our interns this week are Alana Pierce and Courtney Clark, and we will talk to you next week. Take care, y'all.